welcome again this morning. Do want to uh, acknowledge that we are celebrating Dr. King Davis this weekend with the holiday on Monday, and so we do want to acknowledge that and all the wonderful things that he stood for, freedom being the primary freedom in Christ. So we thank God for that, that we do have that. So before we get into Joshua, I would like to, as we have witnessed this wonderful video, I would like to share just a few notable quotes, just three, Dr. King, just as words of encouragement. Some, most of them you've likely seen before just as a, as a reminder and words of encouragement before we get into Joshua chapter 11. I'd like to share these with you. Uh, here, here they are. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And then this one, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. And then lastly, this one, I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. This is why right, temporarily defeated, is stronger than evil triumphant. Right will always win. So we thank God for those encouraging words. Now, would you stand with me? Join me in a book that you may have forgotten we were going through. <laughs> Joshua. Let's look at Joshua chapter 11. I'm going to read all of Joshua chapter 11. If you would follow along with me, that would be great. And if you're there, you'll find the following words from Joshua chapter 11. When King Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Aksaph, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Chinnereth, and in the lowland and in Naphoth door on the, red, on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Havites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. All these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Miram, and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon, 
and Misrephoth Maim, the east word, as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burnt their chariots of fire with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazar with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on the mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone, that Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. And they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua. And Joshua so did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all that land the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all the kings, all their kings, and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should, not, that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country from Hebron to, Dib to Dibir, uh, from Anab, and from all the hill country to, of, of Judah. And from all the hill country of Israel, Ju Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for inheritance to Israel according to the tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Amen. You may be seated. From this 11th chapter of Joshua, I want to talk from this thought, the, la uh, the Canaanites' last stand. Canaanites' last stand. You recall that back on, if you can remember back this far, on September the 11th of 2022, we began our journey through Joshua. And the tracing of the conquest of Canaan, we began it with the message entitled, Be Strong and Courageous. In Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. You remember that the people of Israel had camped on the plains of Moab at a place called 
I remember I made you really slow down and pronounce this word, a place called Chitin. Not the other way you pronounce it, because you have to be careful. By the way, I, I, I thought that what we would do before we get fully to chapter 11 is give a bit of, because it's been a while, hasn't it? Been a while since we were in Joshua. By the way, also another thought just came to mind. I want to thank John Glenn for standing in as he always so faithfully does for me on last week. Thank you, John. Uh, been a while since we've been in Joshua, so thought I would just take a, a brief, uh, hopefully it's brief, recap from chapter 1 that brings us to chapter 11. They had camped at Shittim for several months. Uh, they were there uh, seven miles east of the Jordan. They had been there for several months, and this was the last camping place before the Israelites would, would cross the Jordan. While at Shittim, among other things, Moses recites the history, you'll remember, of the people and the laws of God in Deuteronomy chapter 34. He also climbs to the top of Mount Pisgah to see but not enter the promised land. And then he dies. It was then in the first nine verses of chapter 1 that we found out what it takes to go from wandering around in the wilderness of defeat to living in the land of victory. As we looked at their predicaments, God's promises, God's process, and God's presence. From there, we looked at uh, what I entitled Keys to Successful Mobilization in chapter 1, verses 10 through 18. And I said then, and I'll remind you now, that as it relates to Christians and the Christian life, mobilization is about three things. Accomplishing God's will, obeying God's commission, and claiming God's promises. As we uh, said that the keys were to that, we said then, the keys to successfully mobilizing uh, in relation to God's will uh, is to do this, rapidly respond in faith. Joshua did. Joshua did that after his lengthy encounter with the Almighty himself in chapter 1. And, to, and then the other key that we said was to avoid selfishness, as seen in Joshua's charge to remember that he gave to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh as he solicits their support and assistance in the mobilization effort. Then we made our way to chapter 2, and in chapter 2, Joshua sends spies, you remember, to scout out what would be their first foe in the conquest, the fortified city of Jericho. Uh, we were introduced at that time to a Gentile harlot by the name of Rahab. And we found out that her story is there for several purposes. It's in the Bible for several purposes, namely to highlight uh, God's grace, to highlight Rahab's faith and her seeking of refuge in Yahweh. It reminds us and gives us hope that it's not a matter of bloodline, I told you then, but it's a matter of belief. The matter where you came from, as long as you believe. 
Doesn't matter what your background is. Doesn't matter where you are now as long as you believe. Next, we made our way to chapter 3. And in chapter chapter 3, we talked about crossing the uncrossable. Here, the children of Israel had great expectations. The spies had given a good report uh, when they returned from Jericho, but there's a challenge that could possibly, potentially prevent them from crossing over to their promise. The challenge was the flooded and seemingly unpassable Jordan. But people set out as directed by faith. And as soon as the priest's feet, you remember, hit the water, the water stood up in a heap from 16 miles away at Adam and Zarethan, and everyone was able to pass over on dry ground. Amazing. Uh, uh, we, we, we left chapter 3 and made our way then to chapter 4, where we discussed once you crossed over. Once you crossed over. I posed a question back then. The question was and is this. What do you do once you've been blessed to overcome the impossible? What, what, what do you do once you have realized that God has blessed you to overcome the impossible. I gave you two answers then. I'll give them to you again. Two answers that are said different ways but mean the same thing. Here's the two things. Remember and don't forget. That's what you do when you realize God has blessed you to overcome the impossible. First, remember. Second, don't forget. Because I told you then and I'll tell you now, the greatest enemy of faith is forgetfulness. Somebody should have said amen right there because you've already forgotten what God did for you in your yesterday. And you worried about what you're facing today. The greatest enemy, faith, is forgetfulness. After the Israelites finished crossing the Jordan River, the Lord told Joshua to select 12 men among the 12 tribes. After doing so, the men were instructed to take 12 stones from out of the midst of the Jordan from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly and bring them over with them and lay them down in the place that they would lodge for the night. You remember that? The record is that as strange and as difficult of a command that might have been, they did exactly as the Lord had instructed. They entered the dry riverbed, and each of them took up a large stone. Remember, it was so large that it had to be carried on their shoulders. Then they carried their stones to what would be their first encampment in Canaan at a place called Gilgal, which was about two miles from Jericho. Once they arrived, they set the stones up as a perpetual memorial of the goodness. Do you have any reminders, memorials of the goodness of God? They set these stones up as an everlasting memorial of the goodness of God. After chapter 4, I was out for a bit as we traveled to Israel. So I missed several chapters in between 4 and 8. And when I returned, we were in chapter 8. By the way, thank God and thanks to all those who stood in, Jeff Bison, J.D. Moore, John Glenn, Nate Hill, all who stood in and preached through those difficult chapters. Jeff still doesn't let me forget that he had to preach about circumcision. <laughs> He's like, you could have gave me something else. 
I had to do the circumcision. I said, man, that, that was perfect timing for me. <laughs> so when I got back, we were in chapter 8, and the conquest had begun in earnest. Jericho had been defeated in chapter 6, and the walls came miraculously tumbling down. There had been a setback at Ai due to the disobedience of Achan in chapter 7. And we looked at what I called the second time around in chapter 8. Joshua and the Israelites dealt with the sin among them and are given a second chance, which ends, you remember, in victory. It was here that we were reminded that the defeat you had in your yesterday does not have to be your destiny or or nor define you. The defeat, and all of us have had them, in our yesterday does not have to define us. Because, I told you then, I'll remind you now, we serve a God of second chances. We serve a God of a second time around. And then after we cover chapter 9, after that, we covered chapter 9, and we talked about when the word gets around. When the word gets around. Uh, uh, in chapter 9, you remember the kings of Canaan had heard about the Israelites winning victory after victory and advancing the cause of their God. In fact, chapter 5, 9, 10, and 11 begin the same way, with the word about God getting around. Beginning, though, in chapter 9, some of the kings from uh, form a military alliance and seek to change the failing strategy from defensive to offensive and attack the Israelites with combined armies. They decide to form an offensive alliance to resist and hopefully defeat Israel. They think that this certainly, J.D., is a good strategy. We can get this alliance together and we can take them out. But what they don't realize is that in resisting Israel, they were resisting God. And that's a no-win proposition. When we last left off our time together in this series, it was November the 20th, just before beginning our Advent series. You'll recall we were in chapter 10, and we talked about a day like no other. A day like no other. Uh, it was in chapter 10 that Adonai Zedek decides to send word to the four of the kings of southern Canaan. Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon proposing that they form a coalition and attack Gibeon to teach them a lesson as a deterrent to others. By the way, you remember in chapter 9, it was the great uh, ruse that Gibeon pulled off against Israel. They tricked them, made them think they were from a faraway land when really they were from right there in Canaan, and they tricked them into making a pact and a promise to them a covenant with them that they could not go back on uh, because they decided we're not joining in this alliance. We're going to trick them and become a part of them, and that's what they did. 
Uh, but, 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 but then in chapter 10, Adonai Zedek and these other kings find out, and the kings agree that this has to be stopped. So the text says that they went up and made war against Gibeah, faced with the armies of the coalition and certain destruction. The Gibeonites sent a messenger, you remember, to Joshua asking for help based on their treaty with Israel. Joshua and the people were quick to help them. It's here that we get in chapter 10 the final two miracles chronicled in the book of Joshua. It was, in fact, a day like no other. You recall the first miracle, the first miracle in chapter 10 was as the men are fleeing to Azekah and Makeda, the Lord rained down large hailstones, which the text says killed more men than Israel were able to kill with the sword. The second miracle is this. God caused the sun to stand still, although the sun really doesn't move. <laughs> it's the earth that rotates around the sun, and we agreed, we decided that we don't know what all of the physics are around the miracle. All we know is that it was a miracle of God that he caused the day to last long enough that Joshua and the Israelites could defeat the enemy in daylight. It was the second miracle in chapter 10 and the final miracle that we'll see in all of the book of Joshua. It was a day like no other. So today, as we pick back up, we've made it to what will amount to the Canaanites' last stand here in chapter 11. As this victorious campaign against the, the north that we're getting ready to read about, it, just we just read about, will mark the final battle of the conquest. There'll be no more fighting in Joshua. The fighting, as we get to the end, of chapter 11 ceases. And some other things begin to happen after 11 all the way to the end. But this marks the last stand of the enemy. From this account in chapter 11, we are reminded of at least two things. I'm sure there are other things there. And normally I like trying to find at least three. <laughs> some of y'all know. Been, you've had homiletics, you know why. I like. But I, I just decided that we were going to talk about two. I see at least two things that jump out uh, of the text uh, to me uh, from this passage. Here it is. First thing is this, the power of one word from God. The power of one word from God. It's in verses one through six. Verses one through six. Uh, I, 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 let me just read it for you real quick again. I know we just read it, but I want to read this. I'm probably not going to read the rest of all of this passage, but I want you to see what's happening in 1 through 6. Here's what it says. When Jabin, king of Hazor, uh, heard of this, he sent to Joab, king of Madon. By the way, next time, maybe next week, I'm going to have one of y'all read because all these names are just... <laughs> need a reader. <laughs> and to the king of Shimon, 
and to the king of Aksaf, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and to the Arabah south of Chinnereth, and to the lowland, and to Naphoth, Dor, and on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Havites or the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in the number like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and camped together at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. As the chapter begins, we can't help but be struck by the size and the strength of the armies opposing Israel. Stressing the magnitude of the army, the first two verses list five kings, just like the ch in chapter 10. Only, here's the thing, the fifth king is plural and opens a second list of kings from various regions in the north, in verse 2. After this, verse 3 lists all six peoples in Canaan. Canaanites, Amorites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Hivites. On top of this, verse 4 speaks of many horses and chariots, calling the entire army a great Horde, like the sand on the sea. The author of Joshua spares no expense to describe the size and the strength of Israel's opponents. And verse 5 confirms that these kings had evil, ungodly intentions. All these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. That was their intent, to fight, to overthrow Israel. From these five verses, we might think that a massive battle is about to take place, and if you think that, you would be right, because it is. Yet, here in chapter 11, the response from God is remarkably short. In one verse, God says one thing, and it is sufficient to overthrow the entire horde. One word from God. Verse 6 says, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. You know why we see, by the way, you know why we see this statement throughout Joshua and throughout Scripture where God speaks to his people and says, do not be afraid. Because often in our humanity, we're faced with things that make us afraid. Okay, Cole, let me say that one more time. Often, for those in the back, often in our humanity, we are faced, if you're honest, just be honest today, this honest Sunday, we're faced with things that cause us to be afraid. I, I know I do, but, but all throughout Scripture, Joshua and all the, God constantly says, do not be afraid. 
is what he said. Do, do, do not be afraid. He says this is the reason for tomorrow at this time. I will give over all of them slain to Israel. He says you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Take out the horses, take out the chariots, because it's not good for men to trust in horses and chariots. And if you were to take them into your possession, maybe you somewhere along the line would begin to put your trust in them and not in men. Take them out so that they can't have use of them and so that you won't trust in them. Then in verses 7 and 8, which we'll discuss later, uh, it reports the accuracy of these words when it says this. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Miron and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. From these verses. We learn a key lesson. One word from God. Is more powerful than all the armies of the world. Just one, really, it could be one word. I mean, there, there's a statement here. There's a sentence. There's, there, there's a phrase. There's, there, God speaks uh, something. But really, just one word is stronger, more powerful than a horde of soldiers, chariots, horses, swords, bows, arrows. Weapons, because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. One word. Just we get an example of this in Revelation uh, when the sword proceeding from Jesus's mouth, uh, which is a reference to God's word, instantly defeats his enemies. This in Revelation 19, 15. Here's what it says. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with the rod of iron just by opening his mouth. Likewise, here, the word of the Lord is absolutely sufficient for defeating the evil army. So, traveling from Canaan to Tala. Let's remove ourselves from Canaan for a minute and let's place ourselves where we are in Tala, Texas in 2023. What does it mean for us? This should give us, the people of God, great confidence. His word is sufficient to defeat any enemy that we face. His spoken word, the word in, that he gives us in his, in his book, the Bible, the Holy Bible, his word is sufficient. His word is all that we need. It's what Martin Luther was talking about in this line from a mighty fortress is our God. Here's what Luther says. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. 
one little word shall fail him. I don't know what you're scared of. It's all right to be afraid, but don't let that fear linger just for a moment. You can have a bit of hesitation, just a moment, a fraction of fear and despair. But immediately, you ought to remember that God did not give us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And one word from him is enough to destroy any enemy we face. So here in chapter 11, we're reminded that the power of one word from God is enough. Also, we're reminded of this, the importance and the results of faithful obedience to God. The importance and the results of faithful obedience to God. We've seen it all throughout Joshua. We see it again here uh, in verses 7 through 23. In verse 7, Let me read it. I'm not going to read all of this, but I want to read verse 7. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merah and fell upon them. I don't see anywhere in there that y'all remember I told told y'all a little while ago about the Asian hesitation, vacillation, procrastination. I don't see none of that there. It says that Joshua and the Israelites came, Brother John, they came suddenly. Immediately after God gives this word. The very next, I don't know how long it was, but I know it was the next verse. The next verse, (laughs) the next verse, they come suddenly without thinking about it, without worrying about it. They come suddenly. Joshua believes God and acts quickly. As Joshua has proven to do thus far, we've seen him do this time and time again. And in verses 8 and 9, we see the results of this faithful obedience as we get a brief account of the results of Joshua and the Israelites' actions. Uh, We don't get a detailed blow-by-blow description of what happens in this battle. We just get kind of a summary in verses 8 and 9. Here's what it says. And the Lord gave them into the, into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Misrephoth, Mayim, and eastward, as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burnt their chariots with fire. We don't get blow by blow, but we do know. Angelina, we we know that they were defeated. We know that God kept his word, as he always does. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't, don't, Don't be leaning until your understanding of what things ought to be. If God tells you to go outside and march around this building seven times, seven days, and then on the seventh day, shout, then I ought to drive up here one day and see you marching. I'm just saying. That's how powerful. And, and, and so they, they immediately obey. And then in 10 through 14, Joshua and the Israelites turned to the cities represented by the kings and their armies, just as they did at the end of chapter 10. Joshua began by completely destroying Hazor. 
uh, which verse 10 says, formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. Then, after striking dead everything in the kingdom that breathed and completely destroyed the city by fire, Joshua and the Israelites went on to destroy the peoples of the other cities, but took possession of the spoils, the livestock, and the cities themselves. And then we get to verse 15. And verse 15 is a critical verse. It's a hinge, it's a summary of things up to this point. Here's what 15 says. 15 says this, just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua, so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. This is a very significant point in history. Throughout the first five books of the Bible, God had been promising to deliver his people into the promised land. But as the fifth book, Deuteronomy, concludes, we find the Israelites still outside of the promised land looking in. As the first few chapters of Joshua play out, we find Joshua preparing the people to go into the land and leading them across over to cross over the Jordan so that they are able to physically enter the land. However, being in the land was not the same as having possession of the land. They still needed to take possession of it by removing all of the inhabitants. Then, beginning with Jericho, the Israelites began the task of disinheriting and destroying the current inhabitants of the land until we finally arrive here at 1115. We arrive here at 1115, not only do we find the Israelites in, in the promised land physically, but they have now essentially taken out all those who had inhabited the land and were alone possessing the land which God had promised them as an inheritance. The fact that the Israelites had physically taken possession of their promised inheritance is directly tied, directly tied to the fact that Joshua was obedient to all that God had instructed him through Moses. That's how they got here. I mean, God could have gotten him, gotten them here any way that he decided to, because uh, <clears throat> he's God. God's sovereignty does not take the place of our responsibility. He will still uh, expect us to be responsible even, even in the midst of his sovereignty. We still have a part to play. Joshua still had to be obedient. His obedience leads us to 1115. And then in 16 through 23, Joshua provides a kind of a summary, uh, it provides a summary of the Israelites' campaign to take possession of the land. And within that summary, we see the way that God has orchestrated this, the dispossession of the land from the pagan nations. In verse 20, verse 20 is interesting. Here's what verse 20 says. Uh, verse 20 says this, For it was the Lord's doing to harden the hearts Harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be 
devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Man, what's going on here? What's happening with this hardening of the heart stuff? Right? Uh, As with Pharaoh, you remember, Exodus chapter 4 through Exodus chapter 14, uh, and Sihon in Deuteronomy chapter 2, God hardened the hearts of these nations, which is to say he let them be who they wanted to be. Or as Romans 1 puts it, God handed them over to their sins or to a reprobate mind which is their greatest desire. Their greatest desire was to be who they wanted to be. So God hands them over. God hardened their hearts by withdrawing his hand of restraining grace and letting their darkness shine through. They have to, unfortunately, pay the price for their wickedness. I I, I mean, it's it's a tough pill to swallow, but, but here's a way that you can swallow it. Without it being so tough. Just allow God's will to be done in your life. And and, and don't find yourself fighting and kicking against God for too long. (laughs) It would not be wise. It wouldn't be wise to fight and kick and pull and, and, and all of that against him for too long. You don't want your heart to be hard. They have to pay the price. Uh... Then in verse 23, which closes this passage, verse 23 serves as a hinge that turns from the conquest of Canaan to the distribution of the land to the 12 tribes. Let me read this final verse. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. This is a shift. Now, from this point forward, there'll be no more war in Joshua. What we'll see from 12 to the end is allotment. The inheritance being passed, the the division of the land being given to the 12 tribes, we'll see that. But there will be no more war. Distribution will happen from this point forward. Because of Joshua's obedience, because Israel has now taken possession of the land, because of Joshua's Uh, faithfulness to God, obedience to God, not hesitating with God. Now they have possessed the land and the only thing left, the fighting is over, the only thing left to do is to distribute. In closing, let me say this. As we have noted before, the book of Joshua is written in a purposeful way. It's written in a way that foreshadows the life of Jesus, and the plan of salvation that God was working out. Uh, So so here it is, the warfare of Joshua uh, anticipates the earthly ministry of Jesus and the ongoing mission of the church. By the way, the battle and the war is over 
here in 11.23 for Joshua and the Israelites, but it's not over for the duration of Scripture. And just in case you didn't know, it's not over for us. I mean, we want it, but we still have to fight. Because battle's not ours, the battle belongs to the Lord. But you do know that we have an enemy that is prowling about like a hungry lion seeking who he may devour. And so although this is the end of war for Joshua and the Israelites, it's not the end of war for us. It's been won. Jesus won it on the cross. But every day when your feet hit the floor, there's not a day, uh, uh, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, any day that ends in Y. You're going to have to fight. Now, you fight. You fight from the place of knowing that you already have the victory. You fight from the place of confidence. You fight from the place that you know that the blood of Jesus has already won it for you, but you still got to fight. Joshua, Joshua foreshadows Jesus so that when we read about the battles in Joshua, it helps us to look to in our battles, our Joshua. Who is our Joshua? Jesus is. So then we ought to trust in him. It prepares our hearts to trust God for his aid in our battle. And to look to Joshua, who is our Jesus, for victory. Because he's already secured it for us. He's already given us. And, and as we read the first 11 chapters of Joshua, and see all of the fighting, all of the war, all of the challenge, all of the threat of the kings and the nations and the territories that come against the people of God, we ought to be encouraged, Brian. Because in every one of them, people of God emerge victorious with a shout, with confidence. And you know the only thing they have left to do? Distribute their inheritance. You do know you have an inheritance. And if you just stand confidently on what God has promised, the only thing left for us to do is fight from a place of confidence and to distribute within ourselves what God has already promised. You know you're an heir. You, you do know that, right? With all of the rights and privileges of a natural-born son or daughter of the father, of the king. Amen, somebody. And Joshua helps us to see that. Would you promise me that you'll leave here today knowing and standing on that fact? That Joshua prefigures Jesus, and in Joshua we can see the victory that Jesus has already given us. And if we would stand boldly, as Joshua did, and we'll have victory. We have it. We can walk in it. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for the promises that you've made us.
Thank you for the victories that you've given us. Thank you, Lord God. The battle is not ours. The battle is yours. Give us strength, Lord, to fight every day from a place of confidence. We love you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If, if, if you are here today and you don't know Jesus personally, you've heard about him, but you don't know him personally, you've heard other folks talk about him, you've heard whoever, you don't know him personally, this would be a great day to surrender and submit to him. So we'll, we'd love to help you with that, if that describes you. Let us know. We'd love to pray with you. Uh, obviously, and of course, you don't have to do that here today with us or anything like that. You can do it whenever you so desire. I would just, as always, encourage you not, not to put it off too long. Uh, as well, if you've been coming to Bethel Hope and uh, you've prayed about uh, making Bethel Hope your church home, and you've decided in your heart that God has given you that, we would extend to you an invitation as well to become a part of our family. If that describes you, let us know. And we would love to pray with you and lead you into that relationship as well. First, the relationship is uh, eternally important. It, 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 it determines where you'll spend eternity. Second one, we would just encourage you to take care of because it's an act of obedience to connect somewhere. Don't get quiet. Connect somewhere. Need to be connected. All right, so with that, if there's no one, and we'll move on, uh, what I'd like to do at this point is to recognize any first-time guests that we might have that are with us today. If you're a first-time guest, would you stand that we might recognize? Please remain standing for just a moment. We'd love for you to introduce yourself to us uh, and let us know what led you to be with us today. Uh, KB has got the microphone, so we can all, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Hey, I'm Savannah. Andrew just moved here from uh, San Antonio. Okay, wonderful. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. Um, my name is Joshua, and this is my wife, Jacqueline. Uh, we're visiting from Alaska. We plan on moving here in the fall, and so... Um, my wife is friends with Jacqueline and Taz, and so uh, Amber. Sorry, <laughs> Amber and, right. and Taz, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Good, wonderful. Thank you for being here with us. Uh, you came on the right day. We preached about you today. <laughs> I'm just saying, you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you like it. Hi, my name is Sandra, and I work for Mercy Ships in Sierra Leone. Oh. And I know Jerry and Marty Putman Wonderful. from when they worked there in the past, and also uh, Jeff, who comes with uh, teams to Sierra Leone. And I came here today with the Schwins. Wonderful. Thank you. Wonderful, wonderful. Thanks for being here. Yeah, yeah, right here. This is my longest-term best friend forever, Janice, who's visiting from uh, Fort Worth. And she says she'll stand the next time she's here on the weekend of the 25th. <laughs> next time won't be the first time, though. No. No, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. <laughs> welcome, welcome, welcome. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you can do that. <laughs> All right. Hi, my name is Rita, and I've just relocated here from Dallas. Thank you for being here. Yes, sir. My name is Mike. 
And yesterday I was called to be here to hear your sermon, be with friends, and just greatly appreciate it. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. to Is that everybody? Thank you to all of our first-time guests. We are so happy that you decided to be with us today. Uh, and we pray that uh, the Lord so leads that you would be with us again uh, whenever you can. Our greeters have, if they haven't already, they have a card for you. We'd love for you to fill that out so that we might keep in touch with you and you keep in touch with us, that we would be able to pray with you and for you, and you can do the same through us. And then we have a special gift for you on your way out as you return the card to the greeters. God bless you all. So glad that you're here with us. Um, if there's nothing else, we have come to the end of our time together. And uh, the brother said he was led to be here to hear my sermon today. And I just pray that, uh, you know, I, I hope and pray that uh, I ain't mess it up too bad. I've been known to do that. He's smiling, so I guess we're okay. <laughs> like, I'm just smiling because you, yeah, anyway. God bless you all. Uh, pray that you'd have a blessed rest of this day, a blessed rest of this week. Let, allow me to, to, oh, I forgot something. Very important something. Uh, I said to you last month that uh, every month we would recognize uh, once a month, our newest members, and uh, we did that last month, and then recently we had, uh, two weeks ago at our trustee elder meeting, we had uh, two other members that were affirmed, and so they've al always been with us but well, for the past few weeks, but they've officially been affirmed as of two weeks ago at the elder meeting, and so we want to recognize uh, the Jacksons. Would you both stand, please? Uh, as our newest members here at, at Bethel Hope. Now, what we've done, what we've said we would do when we do this is give our new members an opportunity to share with us uh, what inspired them to become a part of our family. So would, would you guys care to do that, please? Sure. I thought we was going to be able to get out of here without no, saying No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, just uh, glad to be here. Uh, we relocated here. Uh, after my wife finished up her training in uh, Hot Springs, Arkansas, I believe, are originally from Fort Worth. Uh, so we're just happy to be here. And Tyler really loved the city. And um, what inspired uh, us to be here, number one, you know, God's sovereignty. And number two, just a little research in that nice coffee shop downtown <laughs> <laughs> where I like to do most of my research. Okay. Uh, but uh, found out that they had multiple campuses downtown, went to the website, and really just fell in love with the church after uh, listening to a few uh, sermons um, during the live stream. So the live stream works. <laughs> <So> <laughs> but uh, me and my wife were happy to be here, and we really love uh, what God is doing within this church. Thank you, brother. Yes. Thank you, Lord. Yes, yes, wonderful. So we want to welcome the Jacksons to our family. Um, now, you have to forgive me because I forgot to order treats for you guys. I forgot to order cupcakes. Jeff, you didn't remind me. No, it's not your fault. You didn't even know. It's my fault. I can't blame it on you. <laughs> Normally, we have some wonderful cupcakes, but we didn't order them. But what we would like to do is for, we would like to ask for the elders and deacons and your wives, if you're available, 
just briefly to meet the Jacksons in the conference room for a brief reception just to welcome them to the family. Would you please mind doing that, all of you that can, and, and members if you'd like to, come through and welcome them to the family, uh, and then we will, we, will, we will be glad to do that. And I promise you I'll get you your treats later. Charge that to me. I forgot to get that done. Welcome. Now let me offer you this benediction. Now to him who's able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power now and forever. Let us all say together, amen, amen. amen.